Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR Digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, folks. This is Annie for Solidarity Breakfast. It's a lovely day out there. If you're listening to us uh, later on, of course, you can get us by podcast. We stream throughout the week. Of course, this is 3CR's uh, way of getting out there messages on the uh, right side of politics, which is the left. Uh, we've uh, got a good program for you today, I'd have to say for myself. Uh, we've got a, a speech that Rob Starry gave, very interesting fellow, Rob Starry. He's a, 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 a lawyer, uh, On uh, does a lot of uh, public uh, uh, social justice uh, cases. Uh, he is uh, the go-to lawyer, it would appear, for uh, all those cases that are around uh, uh, terrorism uh, within Australia. Uh, he's got a very interesting take on uh, the development of uh, uh, draconian uh, laws that are uh, crippling, effectively, Australia's uh, really... Uh, uh, de- democratic and uh, public space, space really, the tendency towards uh, uh, crushing uh, people's ability to actually uh, express themselves politically, ultimately. But it's targeted at uh, the Muslim community and uh, particularly in Australia and also uh, called uh, uh, anti-terrorism laws uh, for the protection of the country, but does it really protect us? And the, he brings to the table some very interesting uh, real uh, cases that have been recently in the uh, the papers, but uh, up close because, of course, he was there. Uh, he was uh, beside the uh, litigants. Uh, and uh, it's a very sobering speech, I'll have to say. Anyway, we bring that to you. Uh, we're going to talk to uh, Jeff Feidler about public housing. There's been uh, there was a, uh, a rally uh, on Saturday, uh, a celebration of public housing in Flemington, uh, kicking off a campaign to s- protect the uh, nine uh, public uh, housing walk-up estates that are due to be demolished, and uh, as part of su- uh, a, renew- a new renewal. A public housing renewal campaign by the government, but it's uh, a, a, a wolf in sheep's clothing. But uh, 
it's part of the, a discussion about what to public housing really is and what the real need is. And Jeff Feidler, who is from HAG, which is housing for the uh, older Australians and uh, Virgo for pensioners, is going to have a chat with us. Uh, we've got This Is The Week That Was and uh, John Sutherland's going to come and talk to us about things like the slow burn escalation of streets to a summer boycott, as well as penalty rates. Uh, also, the... Uh, uh, disgusting uh, anti-worker, anti-union bills that have been uh, floating on the water of federal politics over the last few weeks. Uh, anyway, coming up uh, before we do, some an important uh, message from, let's see, what should you know about this week? There is some things coming up that are really important uh, and I'm not sure if... Let me see. This one's a good one. For one night only, the Great Forest National Park is coming alive at Howler, Brunswick, October 29th at 7pm. Celebrate our diverse Victorian wilderness through provoking forest projections and performances by Shane Howard, Zach Sabre and DJ Dillian Page. All proceeds go towards the Wilderness Society's work on the Great Forest National Park campaign. Tickets are just $25 from Moshticks. That's moshticks.com.au. Just search for Howler. So come and enjoy a unique night out and be wilder. Be wilder is a 3CR supporter. As I said, Rob Starry is a very important person on the uh, public uh, order uh, debate on uh, human rights. He uh, is a lawyer who uh, has done, been a star role, <laughs> uh, probably not because he really wants a star role, in uh, defending the, uh, the rights of people who are taken to court over uh, terrorism uh using the terrorism laws that have... Uh, we usually only hear about it on the front pages of the newspapers and, uh, of course, it's all about ratcheting up fear. Uh, and uh, also it's just in the too hard basket, generally speaking, because people don't really know what's going on. But this is, this is Rob Starry's take on what's going on. I grew up in Footscray in a housing commission estate. I, I understand what it's like for ordinary working people and, and the struggles that they face... And I understand what um, the power of the state can do to ordinary working people. I'll just use one example. When I started work, which is 35 years ago, there are 2,500 people in jail. Uh, there were 35 women in jail. 2017, there's nearly 7,000 people in jail um, and there are about 800 women in jail. But this is the statistic that you don't know, that for the last 12 years the incidence of serious crime, that is crime that warrants imprisonment, has dropped steadily in that 12-year period. And yet we are going on a building campaign in the prison system that will see a prison population shortly of close to 10,000 people. And you might ask, who are those people in prison? Well, I can tell you they're not the corporate criminals that steal from us as a community. They're not those people who evade tax. And they're certainly not those people who send us to unlawful wars. They are poor people 
marginalised, people with drug addiction problems, people who come from dysfunctional families where domestic violence is a feature, and they are the people who are worthy of our greatest intervention and greatest need for support. This is the environment we're in at the moment, and I'd like to stand here and say to you, I blame all of this on our alliance with the US, because what we are now experiencing in the false war on terror is a permeation of laws that were designed ostensibly on the basis of the so-called war on terror. And those of you that work in the construction, uh, the building and construction industry, have already seen us just a small taste of that in the ABCC and the Australian Consumer and, uh, um, Competition Commission. Because in those two bodies, of course, there is no right to silence. The fundamental cornerstones of our criminal justice system have been under attack since 2001. There is no right to silence. There is no right against self-incrimination. And of course, even if you've done nothing wrong, even if you've committed no crime, you of course can be imprisoned for up to six months. With the development of coercive powers in all of our agencies, we will see, inevitably I think, in the current Conservative government, where all of these laws have been passed, I might say in a bipartisan way, with no resistance from those that represent the Labor movement, I am horrified by what's happened. Let me just start with three propositions. The first one is the police never have enough power. They go to government, they go to the opposition, and what do they complain about? We don't have enough power. We don't have enough power of arrest, we don't have enough power in entry of property, and we don't have enough power to charge people. We have had a proliferation of offences now for all sorts of conduct. You don't need to engage in any act. You can be jailed for what you think. Not what you do, but what you think. So, for instance, one of the laws that's in, in place at the moment is an offence that's commonly used, particularly by the federal authorities, and the offence is called a conspiracy, that's an agreement, to commit an act in preparation of a terrorist offence. And so that can be a number of people getting together, usually young, disaffected men, talking about the horrors of what's occurring in the Middle East, the horrors, of course, um, not just in Palestine, but the horrors of what's occurring in Afghanistan, Iraq and Syria. The second proposition, of course, is that the intelligence agencies never have enough power to interrogate and detain people. They say, we don't have enough power, we want to interrogate people, we want to detain them, and I'm going to talk to you about some of the powers that they have. And, of course, the third proposition is that the armed services never have enough resources. And so those three propositions about the police and the intelligence community and the armed services, of course are all the starting premises about what I'm going to present on and, and, and the war on, te on terror. Now, you could not possibly know this, but since 9-11, there have been federally, and I'm not talking about the replication of these laws, federally, there's been 65 separate pieces of legislation dealing with terrorism. And there's been a replication of those sorts of laws in, in the states. As at um, 2011, we had spent $30 billion, that's between 9-11 and 2011, we have spent 
$30 billion on the war on terror. And I'm trying to get some further statistics about what we've spent since 2011, but they are extremely difficult to find. Uh, as an example, ASIO, um, the intelligence um, agency, the domestic intelligence agency, in its current budget in 2017 and 18, and I don't know how many of you have been to Canberra recently and you've seen um, the Taj Mahal that is ASIO on the banks of Lake Burley Griffith, they are going to spend $557 million in one, one year in terms of its surveillance activities. They don't have a prosecutorial role. They simply, they're simply there to gather intelligence domestically. I'm not talking about any international um, uh, arm, ACES, or any of those other agencies. That's just the domestic uh, market. You can imagine how much other money's been spent in terms of the federal budget in the Australian Federal Police and the other um, agencies. The estimate at the moment is that we've spent, this is the estimate, we've spent something like $60 billion on the war on terror. Hi, I'm Aaron Pedersen, and you're listening to 3CR. You are. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie, and we're listening to Rob Starry, who's giving us a very sobering analysis of uh, where we're going. It's a bit like a Titanic, isn't it, when it comes to personal freedoms? Let's hear what he's got to say. He does it quite in depth and in a sort of forensic way. I want to talk about two cases that illustrate just how difficult things have become. And the first one is, um, involves a Bosnian Muslim, Harun Korsovic. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, Harun Korsovic, um, at the time he was arrested, was 18 years old. He had no previous criminal convictions. His parents were hard-working. They were the quintessential migrant success stories. Um, uh, but they were practising Muslims. And Harun Korsovic happened to be a friend... He'd gone to school in Dandenong with another person called Newman Hayder. And Newman Hayder was shot by police in Dandenong um, after he'd um, made an attempt to stab two police officers outside of the Dandenong police station who um, they they had tried to arrest. And Newman Hayder, along with... uh, uh, Sorry, Harun Korsovic, along with another... Um, Bosnian Muslim friend, Sevdet Besim, began visiting the graveside of Newman Haider. Now, apparently, in the Islamic faith, when a person passes, they don't visit the the graveside in the way that other Christian or other um, religious groups might do so. Uh, And it was unusual that they were visiting his graveside on a daily basis. We know that because the police were monitoring these young boys. Sevdet Besim, for instance, became quite agitated by what had happened. One thing that's common between all of these young men, most of them, as I said, 17, 18, 19, is that they've all accessed vision on the internet of the horrors of the war in Afghanistan and Iraq. We're immune from um, what what really goes on, uh, as you're all probably aware, Um, The mainstream media, particularly the Murdoch media that works hand-in-glove with the government and uh, and the other agencies, 
they never, uh, they never transmit or they never broadcast the full horrors of the war. We might see bombed out buildings and we might um, see um, towns being decimated, but we don't see in the same way that we saw in the Vietnam War, we don't see young children running in the streets covered in napalm. We don't see the ex execution um, of innocent civilians. All of that um, material is, is um, hidden from us or concealed from us. But if you go on the internet, of course, you can access this material. I don't suggest that you do for one minute. Um, but um, these young men that we're involved in, and we've been involved in every prosecution of every um, um, person charged with a terrorism offence, whether they're um, the Tamil Tigers or whether they're the jihadists or the PKK, the one thing that they do um, is that they access this material and they become horrified. And there is a call to arms um, from those people who are manufacturing and broadcasting that material to their Muslim brothers and sisters in Australia and throughout the Western world to take action against the invading West. Now, in all of these cases, of course, what's one, th one thing the government does? It denies any nexus or any linkage between the access of this material and any terrorist act um, or our engagement in foreign conflict. They say the three things are not interconnected. Now, Blind Freddy can see that they are interconnected. But if you look at the propaganda that comes out, out of the Commonwealth Government, um, all the politicians, all of the police agencies, they say there's no connection. These are random lone wolf acts that occur um, and there's no connection. So Harun Korsavik and Sevda Bessem, um, of course, become distressed by what they see. And um, they're monitored both by way of physical um, surveillance and their phones are monitored. So right from the point where... Her, where um, Newman Haiti gets killed, they are monitored. Um, Sebdet Bessem, of course, uh, uh, through the internet, of course, um, engages with a 14-year-old in Britain. Um, and he starts talking to about what um, retribution can take place in Australia. What can he do to redress what happened to Newman Haider? And the 14-year-old starts talking to him about um, having to behead one of the infidel, one of the police officers um, in his local community. And that's, um, that's, the best, that's the best thing that he can do. And, of course, the best timing for that would be um, during the 100th anniversary of uh, Anzac. And, of course, the 100th anniversary um, of Anzac is a particularly sensitive time for everyone within the community. Um, and a suggestion that someone could be beheaded um, on, on Anzac Day whilst um, the 100th anniversary is taking place in front of 100,000 people would cause terror in the minds of anyone. Um, and the police, of course, are aware of this and they are monitoring, um, they are monitoring over a six, eight-week period these conversations. And you might remember in the week preceding this 100th anniversary of Anzac... Um, quite graphically, we have the arrest um, of uh, Sevdet Besson and Harun Korsavik in circumstances where um, the government and its agencies say that a, an imminent terrorist attack had been thwarted. Well, that imminent terrorist attack could never have taken place because those boys were being monitored. 
they didn't even know what to do, let alone um, put into place any actual plans. They didn't really even understand what Anzac Day was. Um, but the fact of the matter was that they'd been continuously monitored. And, um, uh, of course, dramatically, we had the arrest of those two boys in, in the days leading up to the Anzac Day commemoration. Harun Korsavik was not involved in any telephone conversation and was not involved in any plan to, to cause any damage or injury to any person. But he was a friend of Sevdet Besam and he was a friend of, of, um, of Newman Hader. And so he gets arrested um, on the pretext of, of course, avoiding or, or um, trying to uh, um, prevent or disrupt an imminent terrorist attack. He gets arrested not because he can be charged with any offence. He gets arrested um, under the um, Prevention of Terrorism uh, provisions. And so he gets placed in as an 18-year-old um, what's called interim preventative detention. And, of course, um, uh, the nature of that uh, detention is that he must be placed in a maximum security environment. So where does he go as an 18-year-old? He gets sent to Bowen Prison. Um, he gets sent effectively in the same unit that housed uh, Tony Mockbell and Carl Williams and um, every one of the other state's most um, serious offenders. And he doesn't know what he's done. His parents don't know what he's done. When, when, um, when his parents' uh, premises were raided, um, of course, you might well imagine or visualise what had happened to him when he was arrested. Um, paramilitary unit coming into the home, dressed in black, with night goggles and night vision equipment, armed to the hilt, run into the bedroom, demanding um, that uh, the person jump out of bed. And, of course, what happened was that um, it was his nine-year-old brother um, that was thrown out of bed. Harun Korsavik was sleeping in another room. So he gets completely traumatised. The family get completely traumatised. They don't understand what's happened. And it was then only after a period of four, four or five days after the Anzac Day commemoration had come and gone they realised that he had um, um, no involvement in the um, offences, that he gets released from interim preventative detention, but then he gets charged on the basis that he's an associate of, of um, Sevdet Besom. And so they say that he's acting in concert with Sevdet Besom, even though he's not doing anything. And then for four months, he's kept at Bowen Prison as an 18-year-old um, and... Um, uh, then ultimately um, the police realise, or the federal police realise, that the charges are bound to collapse and um, the charges then get withdrawn. So what do they do then? Um, they say that he's still a risk to the community because of his association um, and then they make an application to put him on what's called an interim control order. And the control order allows you to remain in the community but it curtails every aspect of your your life, who you can um, speak to, whether you can access the internet, the phone, um, you must live uh, at a um, static address, that's with his parents, and he must wear an electronic bracelet on his ankle um, the whole of the time. Um, and 
Um, then after months of litigation trying to, to, uh, to get rid of this um, electronic bracelet, finally they capitulate um, and um, he gets placed on a control order over our objection, but because it only has another month to run, um, it lapses and then um, he's just returned back to his community. Now, can you imagine what his community must think um, of how we've treated him, a person that they knew had no involvement in any plan, that had no communication with anyone overseas, who they could not identify as actually engaging or planning any terrorist attack? Imagine what the Bosnian Muslim community think, what they think in their mosque when they're... Um, uh, eight, one of their 18-year-old members of their congrega congregation um, gets dealt with in that way. And he is just one example um, because there's another example of a, uh, of a young man in more sinister circumstances, it must be said. He's only identified as MHK. And MHK was a 17-year-old who, um, again, through his friends uh, in the northern suburbs started to look at the internet and look at the material involving the horrendous slaughter of innocent civilians. He became increasingly detached from his family. His father's a medical practitioner. His mother's just a, um, a, a regular person looking after the home. Um, his sister's studying psychology at university. And he's withdrawing from the family because he's seeing the horrors of what's going on overseas. Um, and he prepares um, what was effectively a pressure um, cooker bomb, similar to the one that was used in the Boston bombing case. He gets put into custody, but because he's a child, he gets sent to Parkville Youth um, Justice Centre. Um, and then over a period of two years whilst he's um, in detention, he reconciles with his family. They start visiting him on a daily basis... He re-engages with education and commences um, his year 12 at Parkville College um, and he engages with mainstream Muslim community. Um, they appoint a mentor. The Islamic Council appoints a mentor. Um, he visits him 30 times over that two-year period and the person that's arrested is vastly different from the person who then um, presents before uh, court. When he goes before court because of the sinister nature of the bomb that he was preparing and despite his reformation, he is nevertheless sentenced to a term of imprisonment of seven years uh, with a non-parole period of five years and three months. And the Commonwealth Government then says, well, we want you to appeal the inadequacy of that sentence. And then during the course of the argument about the inadequacy of the sentence, you might remember this, three ministers of the government within a one-hour period write to the Australian newspaper, to the editor, and says sentences in Australia for terrorism offences are woefully low. Victoria is a lenient um, state uh, and um, we, we want to agitate for increased sentences. And so in an orchestrated and considered way, whilst the case is still being heard, they write to the Australian and, of course, there's a banner headline generated by these three ministers, Greg Hunt, Alan Tudge um, and Michael Sucker, in case you didn't know who they were. Of course, the court says to them, this is completely unacceptable. 
the judiciary in this country is independent from the executive arm of government, you're going to be dealt with for a contempt. So cavalier was their attitude that none of them fronted up on the day of the hearing. They were represented by the Solicitor General. It became increasingly likely that they were going to be um, jailed or they were going to be dealt with for contempt. And we were certainly encouraging of that attitude. Whilst the Solicitor General sitting at the bar table in the court, um, he's receiving text messages and he's sending them off. And of course, um, eventually, they make what I say was a completely disingenuous apology to the court. I, for one, did not believe in the legitimacy of that, um, that apology at all. The apology, of course, is accepted by the court. MHK's sentence is increased on appeal to 11 years as a 17-year-old to a non-parole period of eight years and three months. Then at the conclusion of that sentence, the Solicitor General of the Commonwealth DPP says, as they've just announced the sentence, um, by the way, Your Honours, there's now been another piece of legislation that's been passed since the argument began, in which now retrospectively the prison authorities, on an application by the federal authorities, can detain a prisoner indefinitely even if they've completed their non-parole period. Hi, I'm Aaron Pedersen, and you're listening to 3CR. Rolling with you, all a Sunday afternoon. I never thought life could be so stench when you call me Can you uh, tell me who you are? Absolutely. Uh, my name's Christy Lee Horsewood. Uh, I am a member of the Warriors of the Aboriginal uh, Resistance and also uh, the Brisbane Aboriginal Sovereign Embassy and uh, founder of Voices of the Three, an interactive campaign for treaty. Can you tell me about how uh, you are just telling me that uh, just because respect has finished, it doesn't mean that the... Uh pursuit hasn't continued. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I firmly believe and uh, it is my suspicion that the money has just been diverted elsewhere via a government agenda and that uh, recognise even though its current uh, incarnation is disbanded, I don't ever believe that it will be off the agenda and what we need to be concentrating on again is, is treaty and self-determination and recognition of sovereignty uh, because inclusion in the founding document of this country is by and large, not what people are interested in seeing happen. Now, you, you're, I'm talking to you here at Victoria Trades Hall and you're at a meeting of Indigenous peoples or First Peoples. Mm. Can you tell me about coming here to this event? Absolutely. So this is the Indigenous uh, Solidarity Gathering uh, of 2017. So bringing together um, First Nations from so-called Australia, uh, Mapuche, uh, Ethiopian and West Papuan as well. Uh, so earlier in the year, a cultural delegation uh, of Aboriginal uh, people went over to Chile, so-called Chile, uh, to uh, meet the Mapuche, investigate their recuperation process, what their self-determination and autonomy looked like in their context, and to, to form relationships and strengthen our global Indigenous resistance worldwide. So... Yeah. And did you find that there were uh, common threads? Absolutely. Uh, not only in what, what the Mapuche would call uh, cosmovision, which we, I suppose, in, in 
rough terms would be the dreaming for us. So the same, same cosmology, the same uh, type of commitment, the same to Mother Earth and the belief that we, we are extensions of it. We came from it and we will return to it. There's uh, the personal and the human struggle, but there's struggle now for mm. your, your job, mm. what you consider to be your job. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so uh, it's, a, it's a multinational uh, corporative threat uh, based on extractivist neoliberal policies. Uh, so all across our countries, respective countries, uh, mining, forestry, uh, and things like that have taken a massive toll. Uh, Gamilaroi Nation, for example, uh, which I'm very um, proud to be recognised as, uh, we have only uh, two remaining sacred sites out of an original 12, and uh, the destruction of those sites wholly and solely lies on mining companies like Santos, like Whitehaven, like Bogabrite Coal, Um, And these are conglomerates that have incredible types of investment. For example, uh, they have divested, but it was the country of Norway's superannuation fund invested into mining in New South Wales, an entire country's superannuation fund. You can imagine that is a phenomenal amount of money. It's no longer associated with that mining company, Whitehaven, uh, but, but this is the type of money that you're up against if you want to uh, protest and, and denounce extractivist neoliberal policies when it comes to country. So you've got to be clever. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I definitely feel like uh, on a global stage counterurgency in terms of um, the government's counter-movements to resistance uh, becoming more and more defined. Uh, for example... Uh, our first evening in Temakuikoi Tonima, and this is the Chilean context, but uh, the power was switched off to our to our welcome concert. Uh, so this just shows that the systemic interaction and repression is is no longer a, a bubbling menace. It's completely clear and above surface. Yeah, it's direct. Yeah. The warriors of Aboriginal resistance is a very important step, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It is. Uh, with the tenements being uh, resistance revival. Um, Uh, especially when it comes to language. I'm so proud of some of our collective members who have single-handedly, in some instances, revitalised language. Uh, And and as everyone would know, no doubt, your listeners, language was one of the the major blows that we we suffered during the process of colonisation. So with the emphasis on returning to country and rebuilding your community and revitalising your language, uh, I think is, is a a necessary foundation principle to the resistance. I find it really fascinating that we're actually meeting in Nam. Mm, mm, absolutely. Um, so I'm representing uh, war here today on Wurundjeri country uh, and it's my privilege to do so. I'm from Minjin, which is Brisbane. Uh, as I said before, when I introduced myself, so we, uh, War Brisbane works very closely with the Brisbane Aboriginal Sovereign Embassy as well. So there's uh, a lot of community interaction uh, up there. So, yeah. Thanks for talking to me. I'm Pleasure. looking forward to your co- conversation. Thank you very much. 3CR is very proud to announce the launch of the Beyond the Bars 2017 CD. Okay, Papa, you're up to go and see the bail justice. I don't want to go and see him. I say, no, I won't worry about it, you know. Sure enough, here comes the truck. I'm going to Dame Phyllis. Come along to Mesa at 184 Gertrude Street, Fitzroy, on Thursday the 2nd of November from 6 to 8pm. The launch will feature a live panel discussion on Aboriginal incarceration, Q&A and deadly music. 
Oh, like, I don't regret being in jail, not one bit. Solitude and centeredness is difficult to find in the centre of chaos. So this has become, unfortunately enough, a place to be by myself and away from all that other stuff. And, and there's, less, there's less chaos in here than there is out there. Beyond the Bars 2017 CD launch, Thursday 2nd of November, upstairs at Mesa, 6 till 8pm. The Indigenous Social Justice Association has been campaigning for over 10 years to end Indigenous deaths in custody and provide support to affected communities. Come join us as we let our hair down at a trivia night to raise funds to support our ongoing work. Bring yourself or come with a group and take home the trophy. Saturday the 21st of October at the Victoria Hotel in Brunswick. Tickets are $20 waged or $10 concession. For more information and to buy tickets, head to isjamelbourne.com. That's isjamelbourne.com. The Indigenous Social Justice Association Melbourne proudly supports 3CR. Are you Yeah, that's today. Well, tonight. And uh, there's also something else going on. No pride in genocide. This is 2pm. That's today, Saturday, 21st of October. It's at the Coburg Courthouse, 1A Main Street. That's the court near the corner of Bell Street and close to Coburg train station. Now, uh, while colonisation was a disaster, the for the First Nations people, they say, the scale of the genocide and the impact of this and other genocidal policies on subsequent generations has still not been recognised by Australian governments in Australia. These events are not just of historic interest, they have resulted in intergenerational trauma. And three councils in Melbourne and one in Western Australia have voted not to recognise the 26th of January on Australia Day. And there's going to be a panel of speakers who are going to discuss these issues today because there's been this backlash, of course. You'll be aware that uh, neo-Nazi groups have been targeting Yarra and uh, Moreland councils at their meetings. And uh, it's a serious issue. This is about we're in the midst of... It's a thaw, isn't it? It's a change. This is the change uh, that uh, was really supposed to be happening when there was the apology for the uh, disgraceful attacks on First Nations people in Australia by Europeans. Uh, it's it's time for change, and this change is being reflected by uh, the need to not celebrate uh, Australia Day, 26th of January, as uh, an all-inclusive event because it's not an all-inclusive event. The speakers are going to be Annette Zabiras, Wurundjeri Elder, co-chair of the Victorian Traditional Owners Land Justice Group, Gary Murray, Wamba Wamba Elder, Victorian Traditional Owner Land Justice Group, Lydia Thorpe, First Nations activist and Greens candidate for Northcote, and Sue Bolton, Socialist Alliance and Moreland Councillor. No Pride in Genocide, 2pm today at uh, Coburg Courthouse. Be there or be square. Hi, I'm Aaron Pedersen and you're listening to 3CR. There are other things going on, of course. Uh, tomorrow there's a big rally uh, for uh, Yes Fest, rally and concert for marriage equality. That's Sunday, tomorrow, the 22nd. Uh, it's been hosted by the United uh United for Melbourne 
marriage equality and uh, a couple of others. Uh, Equal Love's final event is part of our Yes Vote, Yes Fest campaign for marriage equality. Uh, It starts at 1pm. We're going to meet at the Victorian State Library, they say, for a short rally before we march through the CBD to our main stage set up in the Alexandra Gardens where we will continue to hear from community leaders, political figures, celebrity endorsements and marriage equality advocates. These speeches will be broken up with an afternoon of live performances from some of our favourite local performances ending in a DJ set to set us off dancing to what we hope is an overwhelming yes victory. Those details again tomorrow, 1pm, State Library, to support the equality of citizens in Australia. Now, last month, last week, there was a uh, rally at, in Flemington uh, in support of the uh, saving public housing, build more public housing, stop the sell-offs. Now, there's uh, this has, of course, been uh, actively supported by the Greens, but other people as well, especially the people who are living in the walk-ups that are scheduled for uh, renewal. As some of the speakers last Saturday said, some of the people who actually are directly affected said that when they were told that there was going to be renewal they were really excited they thought oh great this great place we live in is going to be uh, refurbished but no they were shocked to discover that uh, once again uh, weasel words renewal doesn't mean anything for them they're going to be turfed out and uh, apparently even the places that they said they're going to be uh, given to live in uh, are only temporary abodes. Now, uh, there's going to be another rally uh, because it's a rolling campaign. It's now a campaign and it's going to be in Northcote on Saturday the 4th uh, uh, of uh, November. <laughs> they reckon there's 18 months in this year because there's a typo here. <laughs> it just made stump me for a second. Northcote, uh, Saturday the 4th. You will no- have noticed that Northcote is a place of political contention right at the moment because there is going to be a by-election. And, uh, of course, this means that... Uh, there are lots of people uh, scuttling out of the woodwork. It's actually a tussle between the Greens and uh, the Labor candidate. But, of course, our own Joe uh, jo Toscano, one of our presenters here, is, is actually putting his name in the hat as well. So that's very interesting. Uh, anyway, uh, political uh, forces are trying to make uh, public housing a an issue. Uh, well, good. So they should. This is the way it's possible to actually perhaps... Uh, fight the angel of de- uh, democracy, uh, pushing it forward into the right direction rather than uh, in defence of developers. Uh, anyway, so they're going to have a rally in Northcote on Saturday the 4th. Uh, as they say, the Labor government needs to feel the pressure over its plans to sell off public housing estates to developers and we're better than in Northcote where it is facing a by-election to hold on to its seat. Labor needs to know that if it takes public housing residents for granted, it will lose 
the upcoming election. Uh, this is how democracy can play out. It's a bloodless sport. <laughs> but of course, for people who live in the walk-ups, the nine well-placed, well-situated uh, walk-ups that are ready for developers, the government wants to uh, give over the public titles to developers uh, with the belief that we're going to get in return, a 10% increase in public housing. But, of course, the devil is in the detail. Uh, neoliberalism has actually is a dead corpse, We've, and it's being resuscitated by developers and with private-public uh, um, partnerships that are not in the interests of the general public. So be there or be square. Once again, I say to you, a weak solidarity, Bricky team listener, when our exclusive announcement last week that we now have a new environmentally responsible dirty energy target to be known as debt was confirmed Tuesday by big supremo Malcolm Tunnebull and the Minister for Fossils, Josh Fry Dem Icebergs, sitting on the laps of all these caring business class party and hayseed and sheepshit party ventriloquist fossils with their hands up Malcolm's and Josh's you-know-where and looking very, very happy and content indeed. Reliability and affordability. Reliability, the Malcolm puppet kept saying, and affordability. Reliability and affordability. Reliability and affordability. And addressing climate change, surely. Reliability and affordability. Reliability and affordability. At this point, the ventriloquists were gasping and spluttering and losing control, which seemed to begin with the words climate change. Reliability and affordability, and we will meet our Paris commitment. Uh, yes, uh, how? Because we made the commitment. And that morning, the minister for going overseas all the time and being a perfectly good little prefect, Julie Bash Up the Workers, and that prominent ventriloquist fossil, Cray Kilty the Planet, actually said we would meet our Paris commitment because we had made the commitment. And we thought the odd sceptic might have hoped for a, a little more information. Uh, what exactly does reliability and affordability mean, Malcolm? It means I can reliably rely on being afforded the opportunity to remain Big Supremo. And the hands up his you-know-where manipulated him to nod vigorously. Unlike Parliament, where most of them just seem to nod off, the Chamber of Profits, James P. on you, son, urged the Socialist Party to support the dirty energy target, the debt, commenting that the Socialists should not allow ideology to prevent a bipartisan policy. Because the government decision to abandon a clean energy policy had nothing whatever to do with ideology. Look, the ventriloquist fossils are all nodding vigorously themselves. Nothing whatever they call us. Proving they didn't let ideology come between corporate profits and the end of the world. The caring business classes, class P on you, son pontificated, is opposed to decisions based on ideology. Because, as our regular listener knows, the caring business class always makes decisions based on what's good for all of us. Because we know what's good for all of us is good for all of us. Peon, you son, displayed the social altruism for which the caring business class is renowned, its sole raison d'etre. 
true blue Aussie was welcomed to the UN of the US of the UN of the world human rights body by other human rights exemplars, Saudi Arabia, Afghanistan et al, who congratulated our Minister Julie Bashup, the workers, for our impeccable human rights record on Manus and Nauru and Christmas Island and the sundry onshore concentration camps and our bottomless goodness toward the terrenulious non-people, despite knowing they are non-people who selfishly and fraudulently claim lots of our land, even though we know they were never here. Terrenulius, that's what it means. Why won't they accept that? Julie told the Afghans True Blue Aussie was doing all it could to uphold the human rights of those fleeing our liberation of their country, our gift of liberty, freedom and democracy. But sadly, they won't go back. She was asked in one interview about criticisms by the black armband Goody Goody Brigade of True Blue Aussie's human rights record and why True Blue Aussie hasn't criticised a number of particular abuses by certain countries. We have a principled and pragmatic approach when it comes to human rights, Julie explained as if she needed to. In almost equal proportions, 1% principle and 99% pragmatism strikes a perfect balance. But the media largely ignored our exciting elevation, which could well reflect its acceptance of the influence our friends Saudi, Afghanistan et al. and now True Blue Aussie have on human rights around the world. Then again, the same media largely ignores or 100% ignores such matters if they occur in places that don't uh, matter, occupied by people who don't matter. Take those massive bombs in Somalia in Mogadishu which murdered at least 300 people, injured who knows how many more and destroyed countless homes and infrastructure. It earned two paragraphs at the bottom of the world page in the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin. And listener, imagine if those bombs and horrific casualties had occurred in New York or London or Paris or Sydney or Melbourne. At least 20, 24, 28 pages of mass coverage. The innocents, the evil, evil perpetrators, heroes, villains, jihad, terrorism, day after day. Telly abandoning regular programs for mass non-stop coverage. Well, apart from the ads. Mogadishu, Somalia, 300 dead, two pars down the bottom. But... Full marks to the whopping sin. At least it gave it two pars. The other print media, not a line. 300 dead Somalis, not worth even mentioning. The SBS news night before led with IS being defeated in Iraq, good liberated liberty, freedom and democracy Iraq, and the Somali tragedy. World news stories up front. Knowing which I subjected, knowing which I subjected myself masochistically to the Channel 7 news to see where it rated a disaster in Africa. Took an hour to realise it didn't rate at all. A car crashing accidentally through a shop window led the in-depth news. A hoon doing something. Violence in the streets. Violence punished in the courts. Witnesses who can't believe this sort of thing could happen in this neighbourhood, this street. Footballers being traded as the commodities they are. 
I did flick back and forth, but unless I missed something for a whole hour, they covered not one story from outside True Blue Aussie, and only a couple from outside Victoria, and most, if they be so-called stories, in Melbourne, the epicentre of world news. Two weeks of commercial tele-news as our sole source of information, and we'd be brain-dead although I suspect most of the brain-dead would also read the whopping sin just to speed up their symptoms. Not too many belly laughs in that item, Mister, but even less in the racism and highlights in our mainstream media. Julie, who said she couldn't trust, and by she, she meant true blue Aussies, all of us, couldn't trust a New Zealand socialist government, now says she, and by she, she means true blue Aussies, all of us, can trust the government she, we can't trust. Uh, Does that mean we can't trust you, Julie, when you say you can't trust? Trust 3CR to ask that sort of biased, insulting question. I am a politician. Trust me. Well, glad she explained that. One report described the new government as socialist-leaning, explaining why Julie couldn't trust what she now can't trust what she trusts. But I, I reckon we can reassure her she hasn't got too much to worry about. Can't see much of an angle on the lean. Speaking of socialist leaning, four years ago, the then socialist government here introduced a bill banning no ticket, no start signs on building sites and pursuing this socialist objective, the Building and Construction Jackboots Con Mission is threatening action on a number of sites where there are too many evil union flags and evil union notices, propaganda, including, and how's this for having no regard for the law and for the right? of good workers who want nothing to do with evil unions, including notices announcing pay rises gained by the evil union, which the Jackboots Commission says is illegal. If people want legal responsible information, they always have the Channel 7 News and the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin, which agree with us that the community must be informed of just how evil evil unions are. Not evil, which we can be sure investigations will confirm, the Crook Casino, which some whistleblowers claim is living up to its name, but which it's now being revealed is another evil union plot, because Jamie Puker and the Crook Casino lot are sadly having to let go staff, technicians who keep the machines running, and replacing them with contracted good workers at reduced wages and conditions. And don't forget, these are the very workers who stitch up the machines to ensure Jamie wins. Well, allegedly, because who would believe for one moment Jamie would manipulate the odds even more in his favour or ignore domestic violence or participate in money laundering or encourage problem gamblers or anything else underhand? He keeps passing the fit and proper person test, showing how thorough that must be. After all, if some astute putters have the gall to win continually rather than have fun, fun, fun losing, Jamie simply bars them out the door, persona non. The gambling with Jamie Commission overseeing all this, which declared Jamie purer than driven over the same issue some months ago, has been assigned to investigate. Caesar rendering. 
back at the Crook Casino, Jamie is offering huge odds if anyone is reckless enough to back anything more than a slap on the wrist and crook business as usual. He's not even taking bets on being exonerated. That is not to say, Jamie said, that the gambling with Jamie Con mission is not completely independent and, might I say, doing an excellent job. Finally, the Compassion of the Week Award, obviously, to the US of the UN of the US of the world, Big Supremo, Donald Trample the Paw, sympathising with the widow of yet another black, killed defending white liberty, freedom and democracy across the world. It must be consoling to know that being black, bad, bad, he stood every chance of being killed, even if he hadn't gone off to defend the greatest little economic order of them all. Uh, what did you say, Donald? Whatever it was, I didn't say it. Wish the week that was could have that excuse. Good morning. Hi, I'm Hannah Smiley from WA. When I'm in Melbourne, I listen to 3CR 855 AM Community Radio. You can listen on your digital radio or stream it live and subscribe at 3cr.org.au. Counting 3CR is actively advocating for equality in the lead-up to the National Postal Survey on same-sex marriage. As such, we will not give airtime to the No campaign on the basis that it is prejudiced, homophobic and harmful to LGBTIQ people and our families. Our community may hold different views on marriage as an institution, yet we agree this postal survey is a political stunt designed to appease prejudiced and homophobic views. 3CR will continue to advocate for equality in all areas. At this particular time in our political climate, we need to ensure that our members, friends and colleagues know that 3CR is a safe space for all our community. And don't forget the uh, big party that's starting on the steps tomorrow or the steps of uh, the library, Victorian State Library, at one to uh, finish off the uh, Yes campaign uh, before the end of the vote. Uh, I forgot to tell you I got so excited about people actually fighting for public housing that uh, the rally that's on, on uh, in Northcote on Saturday the 4th of uh, November is going to be at Walker Street Estate in Northcote and it starts at 1pm. So if you are at a loss to where you should be, that's where you should be on the 4th of December, uh, November. And... On the phone, we've got Don Sutherland. How are you, Don? I'm very well, Annie. How are you? And best wishes to all of your mem- uh, your listeners. Yes. There's a, been a lot of things happening in the industrial field. Uh, always, always a heated affair in Australia at the moment with a conservative government. And uh, and we, as we've been uh, hearing, there's a little bit of uh, bipartisan uh, support for a variety of things. What about the votes that have been going on in Parliament, Federal Parliament? They didn't get all their way over the last week, did they? No, um you will recall from a previous discussion that the federal government, uh, the Turnbull government, was seeking to introduce a new amendment to that part of fair work legislation that, is, that governs the rules 
about how unions should operate and be administered, and that's called the uh, Fair Work Act, uh, register, uh, sorry, Fair Work Registered Associations uh, Act. Now, uh, what the Turnbull government was seeking to do was make some changes to that act that would fundamentally interfere with the rights of union members to control their unions, especially in regards to the both the arrangements and the outcomes of uh, the process whereby union members elect their union officials and officers and the associated arrangements whereby union members can control the process where elected officials can appoint other officials. So uh, that's just one aspect of what they were trying to do. So uh, what went with that was the changes the government wanted would have enabled employers and governments themselves and other parties with an interest to also interfere with uh, the, the right of the membership of a union to control those decisions about who they wished to be their leaders and so on. You know, you know, Don, I reckon they should have legislation that says that the public can go into any board meeting and just bloody decide who should be sitting at those tables. Well, that is the mirror image almost of what the government was proposing. Uh, however, the uh, Sally McManus organised very quickly using the social media skills that she obviously has, a very good grassroots response that put a lot of pressure on uh, the uh, Senate crossbenchers uh, who did not go along with the proposals being brought forward by Michaelia Cash that I've described. And so that particular proposed bill has been withdrawn and uh, we are not clear at this stage whether they will reproduce it in a perhaps a modified form when the Parliament comes back uh, in three or four weeks' time. Now it's interesting. Well, Xen- that is a no, but really Z- good victory. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Sorry, I, but Xenophon uh, and his group actually voted to support workers. Yes. Oh, surprise, uh, surprise! His parting gift. Well, he he he, he picks his um, uh, he picks his targets very carefully. Um, so I don't know what his reasoning was, but the, in any case, the outcome was very good. Yeah, it is good. It is good. But there's still uh, other elements to that legislation that people are watching uh, closely. Uh, there is this idea that, uh, that perhaps the Senate is is a bit fatigued over uh, industrial relations uh, law that the government's been bringing to its table, uh, which seems like a bizarre reason for why you wouldn't uh, uh, take it seriously. <laughs> If you know what I mean, oh, we're a bit yes. tired. <laughs> yes, I think uh, there there is some truth to that. The what we're talking about here are not the rules that are broken that are in the Fair Work Act that was that is substantially in place from uh, as Labor created it back in two thousand and seven, two thousand and nine. What we are talking about here is, is the Turnbull government's own initiatives to drill down on workers and their unions in various ways 
with their own changes. Now, what is really interesting is that the government and even the employers are not seeking to make changes to the Fair Work Act at this point. It is not their priority to make changes that make the bargaining rules uh, and associated representation rules uh, of the Fair Work Act uh, any worse. They can't get any worse. They are no, that's what I was going to say. They can't get any worse. How, how they are. You know, yes. it's it's funny, Don. Um, I'm reading uh, the Affluent Society, which was uh, Gal- Galbraith. Who, uh, it was written in uh, uh, yes. late 50s, uh, and it's yes. re- uh, it's a republished in 1970s. And it's fascinating how relevant it is today, uh, because it's at the uh, beginnings of uh, what they neoliberalism was called economic revival. And uh, there's a special place for unions in that trajectory. <laughs> yes. Yes, well, very interesting because that is what is being reproduced right now yeah. in, the, in the era of precarious work in all countries of the world, and it's a matter of degree of how bad it is, with this expression, inclusive prosperity. And that unions, it is now seen, uh, and we pick this up, we can come back to this later, but we pick this up a little bit in the Brendan O'Connor speech to the National Press Club earlier this week, that this phrase, inclusive prosperity, originated in a meeting convened by the president of the Bank of England, Andy Haldane, that occurred about two and a half years ago, in which he brought together some of the most powerful corporate executives in the world and government representatives from the major economies to discuss the rising problem for capitalism of rising inequality. Mm. And in that, since that, he himself, as Brendan O'Connor has pointed out, has said that there is a role for unions and collective bargaining. No, but thanks. it is a constricted role. Mm. It must not be allowed to go too far. <laughs> Incredible. Incredible. That's the, uh, so the thinking, this is the modern way in which, uh, and the reapplication of the idea that Galbraith was talking about that limited the role of unions in an age of relative prosperity in some countries of the world, uh, its reproduction into uh, this part of the 21st century. I just remind the now, listeners that they're listening to Solidarity Breakfast and we're having a chat with Don Sutherland. Go ahead, Don. I think it's very exciting at the moment just how much uh, struggle is going on around Australia at the moment. There are literally dozens and probably more because so much happens below the radar and is not reported. And I think it's really inspiring at times when you learn about the unreported uh, they're not they're those struggles that are not publicly registering, uh, where workers are helping each other to stand up against their employers. Just as one tiny example, on the really excellent Unions Australia Facebook page, where there's lots of information flowing about these struggles, uh, a, a worker reported from central Queensland of an incident where a, a, a co-worker was, had been carpeted and, in effect, was being uh, going to be managed out of permanent employment. Mm. 
Oh, that's and a beautiful phrase. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and, and therefore, what to do about that, given that uh, uh, the workers there were not very well organised and so on. And what, was, what I find really interesting is the response that has come from so many people with advice and suggestions, uh, some of them uh, really very practical in the immediate situation where there is limited power in that particular workplace about what could be done to stick up for that worker. And uh, there is lots of that happening that is subterranean that somehow or other has to be brought together into a more coordinated and uh, common struggle with common objectives. And, of course, that's what the Change the Rules campaign potentially is all about. At the same time, we have these really weird things happening. So uh, a week ago today, or yesterday maybe, the Australian Retailers Association, these are the people who represent the big retailers as well as the smaller ones. Are they the, ones, of- are they the ones calling themselves the Independent Retail Association? Independent of what? No, no, I don't think it's the same group. The, the Australian Retailers Association is the, one of the big employer organisations. Now, this particular group has come out with... And, and some of those corporations, like the head of uh, the CEO of Meyer and others, have come out and said that retailers, this is the Myers and the David Jones and so on and so on, are facing the worst Christmas in nearly a decade because ordinary people don't have the same spending power. Now, this is the same, very same organisation, the Australian Retailers Association, that it was a leader in the charge that persuaded the Fair Work Commission in its most craven decision to cut penalty rates. Yeah, yeah, this is just like the federal government complaining about uh, trying to win the next election based on uh, energy prices, which are the, it, it's their fault. That it's happened. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So there we have uh, this contradiction. Of, oh, we must reduce penalty rates so that we can improve the possibility of a better rate of profit. But, uh, oh, when we do so, people won't come and shop with us as much come Christmas time. Is, is this a, this is proof that scum rises to the top? Well, that's another way of putting it. You have a way with words sometimes that... Trump me every time, Annie. <laughs> the, um, so there's a little bit of weirdness mixed up in it. One bit of inspiration, of course, is this wonderful, uh, relatively small but noisy and effective uh, demonstration of predominantly women workers in front of the Parliament House uh, on Thursday, I think it was, uh, demanding... This that, is in Canberra. Uh, the, yeah, in Canberra, demanding that... Um, uh, a new national employment standard be created that enables 10 days of paid domestic violence leave for all employees. Uh, so everyone, I, should, I think, should know by now that national employment uh, standards in the Fair Work Act are statutory minimum standards. And there is a rising voice, and we should be supporting it, that uh, in any future Labor government or Labor Greens uh, government with an independent providing a bit of support maybe, 
that there is a change to the Act that is, introduces this new national employment standard. It was a terrific demonstration, uh, very effective, even though it was relatively small, and it attracted a broad range of unions, I think predominantly from uh, organised uh, through Unions New South Wales. And there is certainly more information about that for listeners at uh, the Unions New South Wales uh, website. The ALP have said that they would, I think this is Tanya Plivasek speaking, back in uh, July, uh, said that they would legislate for five days. Um, it is also possible to get clauses of this type into enterprise bargaining agreements. Uh, in fact, uh, before I finished up working uh, at the AMWU last year, I uh, was involved in the negotiations with Coates Hire, and we succeeded in uh, establishing a new clause in their otherwise quite regressive agreement. Um, a long story there that we can't go into. But we established a new clause that provided for five days of paid family and domestic violence leave for employees under the agreement that Coates Hire. So that sort of thing can be done as well. There's been a couple of uh, uh, important Labor Council meetings uh, across uh, various states uh, over the last uh, weeks, hasn't there? Anything out of um, them? About that issue or... Um, oh, about, about anything in particular. What, what's their focus? What are they yes, talking well, about? I, I, I'm not so much aware of um, the last week or so, but certainly coming up, that's true. Oh, right. One okay. I'm confused about and that uh, you and your listeners in um, uh, in Victoria in particular might be able to tell us more about this. Uh, in There does not seem to be any information uh, uh, readily available about what the, the VTHC, the Victorian Tradesville Council, is doing about the Change the Rules campaign. Uh, whereas in New South Wales, and dare I um, set up a little bit of competition between the two Labor councils and their respective union memberships, in New South Wales on the 16th of November, there is uh, a, going to be a uh, statewide rally of workers uh, about the, the change the rules uh, and that will escalate the process of education and learning and awareness and commonality and uh, solidarity among workers uh, with the objective of um, pushing through this campaign. Oh, well, maybe right, now, Don. Really, perhaps can you help us with that? Yeah, yeah. We'll we all we'll get out our pens and papers and uh, be intrusive and go off and ask them. Uh, I yeah. certainly will. Uh, that's an important uh, point that you've raised. I know that there's been a lot of activity around the Yes campaign, which may have been yeah, one of the reasons. Impressive, I might add. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, this is one of the reasons for why uh, uh, it's been so uh, diverting of a of. Um, uh, energies uh, by having this uh, unenforceable vote that uh, um, young Malcolm has decided to inflict upon the country when it's really a vote about equal citizen rights. Why should we? Why shouldn't citizens have equal rights? <laughs> Go figure. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, the, you... Well, the um, uh, the the other thing that's happening in New South Wales, and this is sort of, I think, the beginnings of 
the possibilities of building the change of the rules campaign from below is that um, there is going to be on Monday night a public meeting of um, anyone can go, but it's, it's the location is in Randwick, which is a sort of an inner south, um, south and east suburb of Sydney. Uh, a public meeting about the uh, change the rules campaign that is going to be led by Emma Maiden, who's the Assistant Secretary of Unions New South Wales. So here we have, and I'm sure that Emma will be talking not just about specific aspects like the penalty rates, but trying to uh, uh, trying to develop an awareness that this has the potential to be a 2017-18 version of the Your Rights at Work campaign that kicked off uh, as a grassroots campaign. Well, well, uh, yeah. 2005. Well, it's the workers that are feeling the um, are getting the bruises and the cuts from um, all the uh, government collusion with uh, big business. Uh, well, it's, so it's not surprising that uh, people, it's starting from the bottom because that's where yeah. all the, the best uh, fights really do start from. Uh, and what, talking about uh, fights uh, in New South Wales, what's happening with the streets uh, workers uh, with uh, Unilever, their boss Unilever? Well, this this struggle is continuing and it's reaching, we're coming to the warmer southern months where the company relies uh, and, and uh, elevates its profit making through the increased sales of its various ice cream products. And the, so it's really the same as when we last reported except for one thing and that is that the union the AMWU, working closely with its members, is escalating its pressure in regards to a boycott. Now, they haven't; they're still not formally calling for a boycott, in, uh, but they are seeking to get feedback from the public. Well, uh, you know, the Fair Work Commission would probably take their tongues if they actually said that they are asking for people's support. You know, g- given that, uh, you know. People aren't allowed to complain about their uh, bosses' behaviours publicly yeah. these days. Well, the workers, the workers at um, at streets have been uh, put under enormous pressure with uh, a very aggressive and nasty uh, 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 actions on the job, uh, whereby the employer is saying that as a matter of policy, they're not allowed to speak publicly about the issues in the dispute and they're certainly not allowed to register their complaints publicly. They're not even allowed now, to use emoticons on Facebook. Isn't that hilarious? That's correct. That's correct. And um, your Stick Together show had provided a terrific, I thought a terrific... Yeah, Matt Kunkel did a great job. Yeah. Now, the big development there, though, is that this week one of the workers employed at streets has defied that good for him him her and has come out publicly and we all need to be paying attention to see what happens what uh, what the company itself does to deal with that act of defiance and of course the australian manufacturing workers union both of its its officials uh closely involved and working closely to make sure that the company doesn't get away with any victimisation of that worker, uh, but um, this is this is 
I think, a very important development. That's the major development in the last week. Yep. The actual contours of the dispute are still as we have been reporting and it's as, as stick together so well, so accurately reported a week or so ago. Um, Annie, the other, I think the other interesting thing that your members would be interested in is the speech by Labor's uh, 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 workplace and employment uh, uh, spokesperson, the Shadow Minister Brendan O'Connor, made to the National Press Club. Yep. This is really about, this is a quite an important speech. It's the, uh, it follows on from his speech to, speech to the right-wing Sydney Institute yep. a couple of months ago. Yeah, we remember this, uh, Which yeah. we discussed back then. Yep. Uh, in this speech, we see, uh, uh, I think, in some ways, a, some positive features to what Labor is proposing to do. Oh, thank goodness. Uh, although there are traps for young players, if mm. one listens very clearly, uh, very carefully or reads very carefully what uh, Brendan O'Connor said, there are problems in what he has said, as well as some uh, quite positive features. Well, yeah, um, yeah. You think that they're promising do, that you think they're yeah, promising something, but they're not. Well, I think um, in a couple of respects, they're fair dinkum about some of the things that they are promising because they keep repeating it, and they actually went to the last election with them, and they okay. didn't get a bad response to those things that, in regards to sham contracting and so on. Yeah, and so I think that there is some uh, there is some on the most extreme aspect of anti-worker behaviour by employers. They are addressing some of those things like sham contracting, the dodgy use of labour hire, and so on. Uh, What he's also, I think, latching on to, obviously in a a way that we could not expect from Michaela Cash and the Turnbull government of these, he is taking seriously the problem of rising inequality and interesting, he, he loves quoting the architects of rising inequality who are worried about it now. And they are Andy Haldane from the Bank of England. He loves Andy. He also loves the OECD and the International Monetary Fund, all of whom have been active architects of rising inequality. But oh, that's interesting. You'd call that second- ironic. Yes, ironic is a very nice word. It's probably a little bit um, muted, but it's, uh, yeah, it is ironic, isn't it? You have to hurry up um, because we're coming to the end of the program. We've got minutes oh, to go. Well, so, second, yeah. He's very good on changing technology relative to the government, and then he's got good things to say, I think, in answer to one of the questions about, or potentially good things about uh, closing the gender gap on wages. Good. But then we get to where I think the traps are. And I'll be very brief. Yeah, quick, quick. We can discuss them another time. You've heard me before. Nothing on the right to strike. Uh. So no power, no new power for workers in the 21st century to be able to deal with what's inflicted on by the employers. Uh, very vague still about anything on industry or sectoral collective bargaining above enterprise bargaining. And... Uh, still, uh, and still very little breakthrough on what can be the content of awards and enterprise agreements, which therefore limits the ability of workers themselves to deal with technological change. Okay, we have to finish there. Thank you, Don. That's fantastic, and we'll talk soon because... 
you've got nothing but interesting things to say. Thank you. All the very best to everybody. Yeah, that was Don Sutherland. Yeah, how interesting. is uh, He's, he's a, a great person to have a chat about what's going on in the industrial world in Australia. Uh, we... Uh, we had quite a lot of things today. Uh, we uh, Rob, Rob Starry talking about the parlous state of uh, uh, our laws and our democracy. Uh, we, uh, uh, with particular reference to uh, some of our Muslim citizens, uh, we went on and heard from uh, Chrissy Lee Horsewood from uh, War. Uh, Warriors of Aboriginal Resistance. We talked a little bit about some of the things that are coming up that we have to go off and do. This is the week that was, and then Don Sutherland. Coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents, and we're going to go out with Kate Vigo. listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.